Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibriwani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Mel Hall. Mel was a former CEO of Press Ganey Associates, which many of you in healthcare know, it's used by thousands of health systems and hospitals around the world. Mel has focused his career on improving patient care across the world, but before Press Ganey, he also served as a Methodist minister in inner city Detroit, which we're going to get into how a minister becomes a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. He also ran for Congress in 2018, and actually that's how I got to know him. Our chief of staff now at Osmosis is named Max Harris, who actually was his campaign manager when Mel ran for Congress. So Mel, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I certainly admire what you all are doing. And uh, I guess as it relates to my background, maybe all it proves is I can't hold a job for very long. <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. Or maybe you're, you have too many interests, it seems. So on that, I'm curious, how did you go from being a Methodist minister to then becoming CEO of Press Ganey? Well, I was interested in being in Detroit in this uh, poorest and most densely populated community because I, I always felt like our belief system ought to flow through our actions. And so I was always more interested in demonstrating and putting into practice what uh, I tried to believe more than just talking about it. And so this community center and church allowed me to do that. And so that church was filled with programs for senior citizens, for youth, job training programs. And for me, it was important to sort of demonstrate faith throughout the week, not just on Sunday or Saturday. As it turns out, it's probably about the best education I've ever received. I imagine you learned quite a few things during that time. So can you walk us a bit through your background? Like how many years were you in Detroit as a minister? Sure. And then how did you that. go about becoming, um, joining Press Ganey and then, and then rising to CEO? Well, I uh, so I was in Detroit for about six years. And again, this church was in the poorest and most densely populated community of Detroit. And as I mentioned, you know, it was just about the best education I've ever received because it was there that I learned that people with not many resources, but with faith and iron wills could do things that most folks thought unimaginable. And so a neighborhood was revitalized and stabilized, not because of an influx of capital that came much later after I left, but because people stood their ground and said, this is the way a neighborhood ought to be constructed. I then went to Notre Dame to pursue a PhD in uh, statistics. Uh, and, but what I was interested in is the ability of uh, uh, using data to describe a situation and then to formulate plans to improve. And so that was my goal. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought it was going to be academia. But while I was at Notre Dame, I met two professors, Erwin Press and Rod Ganey, who had just started a small patient satisfaction firm. Erwin Press, a medical anthropologist, Rod Ganey, a uh, statistics guy himself. And I met Rod when I uh, designed the questionnaire for my dissertation. I had never met him before. I took it to him, stood in front of him and said, here's my questionnaire. And he looked at it and said, I won't use the exact words that he said. He said, this is not very good. It was much more colorful. And then he laughed and said, we'll work on it together. And we struck up a friendship. And then he and Erwin talked to me about this company they were starting. And when I finished, sort of out of the blue, they said, would you like to come work with us and be the manager of R&D and write 
questionnaires for us, which is more than a little ironic because I began by Rod telling me I didn't know how to write questionnaires. Uh, and so when I started there, there were about uh, 33 people working there. We had about 50 hospitals, and my job was to design questionnaires to extend our product line into medical practices, into nursing homes, into home health agencies. And so I did that. I was named manager of research and development. I was the only person in research and development. Uh, and then one year later, I got promoted to director of research and development. I was still the only person in research and development. And then about a year later, <clears throat> Rod and Irwin came to me and said, we started, we started growing very rapidly. And would I take about a two-thirds of the company and have them report up to me? And I said, yes. And then about a year and a half later, they said, why doesn't everyone report to you? And so I, I said yes to that as well. And we, we grew very rapidly. And our growth, I think, was primarily driven by our maniacal customer service. When I began at Press Ganey, there were 11 other companies measuring patient satisfaction. This is in the early 90s. And we would have been ranked number 12. But we took science very seriously. We really did drive hard on issues of reliability and validity. In addition to that, our reports always went out on time, which distinguished us from our competitors. And we had what I would call maniacal or missionary type zeal for customer service. And so we built a culture based on accountability and delivering what we said we were going to deliver. And then we got the attention of many, many university-based health systems who liked our emphasis on science. Some of our competitors probably didn't do much more than maybe walk by a statistics class at one point. But because our focus was on science and because our focus was on, again, a maniacal customer service, our reputation grew very rapidly. It's not that we were doing a lot of marketing. Our marketing was our customers. As you know, inside of healthcare, it's a pretty tight-knit group of folks. And if you aren't doing a good job, they will let other people know about it. And if you are, they will let people know that. And so we, we didn't really have much of a marketing department other than our intense focus on our customers. I will tell you, the first time we were ever mentioned in a national publication, it was the National Enquirer. We had a small little ditty about uh, patient satisfaction. It was right under, this is true, it was right under an Elvis sighting in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That was our first national press. But we, we continued to grow. We were growing the top line 30 to 40% a year. We grew from 50 hospitals to 100 hospitals, and we grew from 30 people to 100, 150. And by the early 2000s, we were up to about 1,800 hospitals. And then by about 2002, we had about twice the number of customers of our nearest competitor. We became the market leader. We had a couple of private equity turns. But what was consistent was the culture of customer service, of integrity, of data, uh, and holding ourselves accountable. Because when one holds oneself accountable, that gives you permission to hold other folks in the company accountable. And what happened very quickly, or what was apparent very quickly at Press Ganey, 
is that we had the market share that we had, not necessarily because our surveys were better, not necessarily because our IT systems were better, though they were, but it was, we grew the way we did and we had the market share we had because the folks who had their jobs at Preskini quite simply did their jobs better than the same folks who had those jobs at our competitors. And so that sort of approach, we always said, culture eats strategy for lunch. Strategy is important. Everybody's got a strategy, but it's the ability to execute and do it day after day after day, I believe distinguished us. And so by the time I left, we had about 55% of all the hospitals in the United States. We were getting back about 25 to 30 million questionnaires a year, and we were five times the size of our nearest competitor. That's an incredible growth story. It, it really resonates with me what you were just saying about culture eating strategy. And I never thought about it that way of that every role you play, it's like a football team, right? Every person you put Absolutely. on the field is better at their position than say the competitor. I'm curious, were there lessons from you being a minister in Detroit that you took to Prescani, like some of those specific values or cultural aspects? Because it sounds like you're, maybe your job in Detroit seems even harder than growing the company the way you did. You know, I think we're part of all the experiences we bring to any new venture. So, so I'm sure that's true. My best guess is it had to do with uh, a continual belief in that objectives could be met and that that happens with people, people who want to either be trained or want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, and this in Detroit was, you know, in the midst of, horrible environment, people reaching out beyond themselves, um, giving of themselves. And I'm sure that that bled through at Prescani as well, because what we were doing at Prescani, you know, one would say, well, it's just surveys. What we believed we were doing and what we talked about in every new hire orientation was that what we were doing was not surveying patients. We were helping to improve the delivery of healthcare. Because in the mid-90s, virtually every voice in healthcare was being heard from. Nurses, doctors occasionally, certainly insurance companies, payors, the government. The one voice that was muted, if not even barely heard from, was the voice of the patient. And so what we did as a company, our mantra was, we're giving voice to patients. I think that cause, if you will helped people understand that we weren't just mailing out surveys. We were giving a voice to someone's mother or father or aunt or uncle on what their healthcare experience was like. And that seemed to resonate with folks. I love that, finding the bigger meaning in what you do, that the why behind the, the how or the what, as Simon Sinek would say. So I know a lot of our audience will be familiar with the concept of patient feedback and, and HCAP scores, and, and now mm -hmm. many of them are reimbursed based on that. Would love to That's hear right. kind of what your thoughts are on how Prescani and other companies in patient engagement satisfaction have evolved over, over time. And, and also now that so much of healthcare is delivered via telehealth, I'm curious what your thoughts are on patient satisfaction in, in telehealth encounters versus the traditional brick and mortar encounters. Sure. What certainly has changed when, you know, the mid-90s, most folks were positioning patient satisfaction as sort of a happy camper index, you know, one smiley or two smiley. But in the early 90s, we added a questionnaire 
to our uh, client satisfaction survey. We surveyed our own customers all the time as well. But one of the questions we put in there was, does your chief executive have compensation at risk based on patient satisfaction or patient engagement scores? And the first two or three years, it was two, three, five percent. By the time I left, something like 92% of executives had compensation at risk based on patient engagement. And so it's the old saying, right? Whatever fascinates my boss interests me terribly. And so that was a change. And it became more than just, uh, again, a happy camper index. I think the other part of the evolution was people understood the, the science behind how you treat a person actually does have a role to play in the healing and outcome process. Uh, And so when the data became stronger and stronger, that patient engagement can lead to fewer readmits, lower risk management. Those kinds of issues, which are real hard dollars, gets the attention of executives. Now, that has certainly matured and changed through the years. And as you point out, rightfully point out, this era of telehealth, while the methods may be different of gathering the data, I yet believe, though I'm no longer affiliated with, with Brescani, I yet believe that the voice of the patient can drive the process of healthcare improvement. Though I would say COVID changes that somewhat because when the goal is making sure that people stay alive and that healthcare workers and healthcare professionals are themselves protected, that's significantly higher order than patient engagement. So I think what the, uh, the, the milieu that we're in now changes it slightly. But when we come out of this, which we will, because largely because of the leadership of scientists and healthcare providers, I think once again, the voice of the patient will be necessary to be at the table as healthcare continues to improve. And we're, we're definitely seeing that in the rise of a lot of direct-to-consumer healthcare companies too, which are really like tech companies or um, mm-hmm. that have become that are in healthcare as opposed to healthcare companies in tech. So companies like Hims or Roe or Oscar, which sure. design around the member or the, the patient. You know, I'm curious, like Press Ganey's worked with so many hospitals and traditional health systems. What's your thoughts on like direct-to-consumer health and putting more power in the hands of the patients? Is that overall a good development or maybe, you know, a bad development? Well, I think it's a great development to put more power in the hands of consumers. Uh, as long as we're talking about someone more than something, someone just Googling their symptoms online and understanding that they can probably perform their own heart procedure. But I think the more people know and the more people can feel like they are a part of their own well-being or curing process, the better. Uh, And the data have been clear about that for the last 20 years. The more people are engaged with their healthcare provider, the more likely they are to follow discharge instructions when they get home, the more likely they are to follow the regimen that the doctor puts forth. So that That's just science, and that's well-known. And so as we continue to evolve towards more telehealth and maybe even more patient-focused care, that continues to be a very important aspect. That's a big part of what drives us at Osmosis. So even though we started as a tool for medical students at our school at Johns Hopkins, have evolved to being medical nursing PA and other allied health students and professionals about 10 to 15% of our comments are patients who are watching the same content and speaking the same language as their providers. 
And one thing I've been dying to ask you ever since Max told me about his affiliation to you is just what in your experience is the role of education for either improving patient engagement or satisfaction? Have you seen any real studies that show whether that's the case, um, as well as provider education, right? Does do things like continuing medical education in your experience improve provider care, patient satisfaction? I would love to hear more about that. Well, it's clear again that the more straightforward communication that comes from the healthcare provider to the patient, the more likely it is, again, that the patient is going to follow those directives. At the same time, the more receptive that healthcare providers are about the patient's own ideas about their care, even if they are not followed, the data are clear that if a patient feels like they are heard, feels like they are valued as a human being, again, insert all the things we just talked about, more likely to follow discharge instructions, more likely to do what they've been asked to do, more likely to follow the regimen, whether it is prescription medicine taking or physical therapy. If the patient feels like they are engaged, they are more likely to to be involved in their own care then. And that does not change. And I think the role of education is both, I think what you all are doing with healthcare providers, healthcare is, in my view, one of the toughest industries to be in, particularly in executives of healthcare. When you think about, they don't, do not really control the revenue. It's much of it set by third parties outside their control. They don't really control, in many cases, the market. But to be able to have a platform that speaks to healthcare providers on not only keeping up to date or the latest discoveries, but the newest ways to communicate with patients, the most effective ways to communicate as a team. And that's what we have seen significant change for the better in the last several years is that healthcare providers are much more attuned to talking with each other uh, about a patient's needs than in the olden siloed days. That has changed significantly. That's definitely been a shift that we're also making at Osmosis is, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years, a lot of the didactic portions of delivering care, the diagnosis of conditions, you know, will be fairly automated or the point of care distance support tools are going to be pretty good, uh, are already pretty good, but will be even better 10 to 15 years. But what we believe can't be replaced is the relationship and the care, the actual care in healthcare of how do you, as you said, make a patient feel like you actually care about them because you do. I'm curious, you, you have a very strong statistics background and psychometric, psychometrics background, having built the survey instruments for Prescani in the first place. Have you seen any like scientifically validated metrics for care? Like how do you measure if a provider or a person actually genuinely cares about someone else? Uh, well, I think one can ask the patient. One of our questions is now a typical question, likely to recommend. Would you recommend your healthcare provider? That generally gets to how was I treated? That's not just science. There's an empathetic portion of that, and which is also part of the healing process also. It's not just science and medicine. Uh, there is this personal relationship. 
which, as you rightfully pointed out, now that we continue to move more toward telehealth, which is necessary, that need not go away. One of the many things we're learning in the last six months is that good relationships and good connections can be formed via Zoom, and one need not be right at the bedside, but it has to do with attentiveness and those kinds of aspects. One of the things that just comes from our, uh, you know, years ago, we there used to be a question about privacy, whether patients felt like they were uh, a noise, and that was a real irritant to patients when the noise level was too high. So one of the things that many healthcare providers started to do was saying, I'm now closing this curtain to ensure your privacy, or I'm now going to close the door so that noise is not going to be so overpowering to you. Just that word of understanding what the patient feels and people who did that, their scores went up dramatically. They didn't do anything different other than to acknowledge an issue and do something small about it. That's awesome. I mean, I've definitely gone to clinicians who say that, and that would all make sense of why you why would you articulate something, right? So it's the, the connection is made that I'm putting myself in your shoes. Um, mm-hmm. One of our biggest demand areas is telehealth education, right? How do you mm-hmm. switch from being able to see, you know, see someone's full body, body language, um, hear them inaudibly, um, you know, make a sigh or something that maybe not you don't hear on Zoom. And how do you pick up on these signals to make sure that at the end of the telehealth encounter, they will be likely to recommend you. Your your net promoter score as a clinician will be hopefully a nine or a 10 as opposed to six or five, right? So uh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. We, we've talked mostly about Prescani, but you also ran specialty care in Nashville. Would love to hear any other thoughts you have based on that experience or the fact that you've spent a couple of decades in healthcare about what we should expect uh, moving forward in a post-COVID world. How will healthcare have changed? Well, I certainly cannot predict what will happen in a post-COVID world, and I can't even predict when we will be post-COVID. The only thing I would say is that science has to be our guide here. It can't be our feeling. As it relates to specialty care, a couple of things were different about specialty care than Prescani. Prescani's growth was almost all organic growth. We made one small acquisition in the nearly 20 years I was there, and so that was one way to grow a company. Specialty care was generally acquisitive type company, but we tried to take the same sort of cultural imperatives to specialty care. Uh, and their biggest area of focus was perfusion and interoperative neuromonitoring. Uh, specialty care, we did about one out of every seven hearts in the United States. And neuromonitoring was about 20 or 30% of market share. But again, it was people providing service, people providing medical care. That was more clinician-based, more at-the-bedside-based. And so I thoroughly enjoyed learning from perfusionists. I had never once been seen open-heart surgery before. And I can remember going in to watch a perfusionist start turning dials when the heart's going like this. And the surgeon, all of a sudden, the heart stops. And the surgeon was replacing valves and then did a little tap on the heart, and the heart started beating again, and I'm looking right in the chest cavity. And for someone who had been in healthcare for a long time, that was almost like a spiritual experience, realizing that the people who were doing that work from specialty care, the perfusionists, along with, of course, with the surgeon, literally had that person's life in their hands. That's an incredible image, and definitely having 
gone through part of med school and still in leave, I've had the one thing that I can relate to most is, is a neurosurgery where the, the neurosurgeon, one of my mentors just handed me the drill and let me, uh, it, fortunately it was, a, it was a drill that actually had a stop gap. So as a first year med student, I wasn't actually in danger of hurting anybody, but at the same time, that literally having someone's life in your hands, as you were saying. And I stand in awe of healthcare providers, uh, surgeons and nurses and all who, uh, who have that as their career. And in some cases they're calling, I, I stand amazed and stand in awe of them yet. Well, that's a good segue to one of my last questions. Cause I know I've taken you over. It's what advice would you give an early stage clinician or provider at this point? And then on the flip side, what advice would you give a patient given that you spent so many years giving voice to these patients? Well, I'm not sure I'm in position to give advice to a clinician or a, a physician other than to say, I think most people get in healthcare because they want to take care of people and they want to make people's lives better. And so <clears throat> whatever the support team around a clinician or a physician can do to remove distractions that take them away from patient care or distractions that take them away from delivering care to patients, I would be in favor of. And I, again, I think that's part of what osmosis is doing is training folks so that when they get in those encounters with patients, they can focus completely on the patient. And so what you all are doing, and particularly the, the by way of education, by way of the online learning, I think is terrific for the improvement of healthcare delivery. Thank you. That, that means a lot. And definitely that part of that clip I will share with my team because clearly the why is always something we need to be focused on. And we aren't just an education company trying to help people pass tests. We're trying to make their experience providing care even better uh, and the patient's sure. experience receiving it. And then conversely, what, what advice would you give to a patient? You know, How would they make their own encounter better? What role could they play in, in that? Well, I think too often patients are still yet reluctant to fully engage in the system. And, and we can all understand that because medical records still are not as transportable and transparent as they need to be. But I think patients need to understand within healthcare and other arenas, there's almost this skepticism about expertise. And unfortunately, that has bled into, pardon the expression, into healthcare. And so when someone is with their physician or with their healthcare provider, there's some sense of sort of giving oneself to the expertise that I think is important and I think is somewhat missing in healthcare now. Yeah, no, we've all seen kind of the reports of people mistrusting even public health officials and you know, what's sure. true or not. Is there anything else that you wish, I, I mean, I could spend hours talking to you about many of the other things you've done in your career and what you're doing now. For the sake of this podcast, I'm curious, is there anything else that I missed that you'd like to comment on? The, the, the only thing else I would share, we, we touched on it briefly, again, is the importance of culture and the importance of any enterprise, whether it's your company or a healthcare system, understanding their internal customers' needs. And whether that is internal associate engagement surveys or some way to get a continual feedback loop. And that's really only the first step, because if all we do is gather data or have conversations and do nothing about it, that's worse than never asking associates what they're feeling or what they want. I think it's imperative for leaders like you and others 
to not only ask for that feedback, but then have a clear strategy on what will be done, what two or three areas will be focused on in the next year, and continually reporting out, here's what we said we were going to do, here's where we were, here's the score, whatever it might be we said we were going to achieve, here's why we are where we are, here's what we're going to do. That sort of continual feedback loop helps to further energize the teams, whether in a healthcare setting or in places like osmosis. That's really motivating. And again, that's one another excerpt I'm going to clip out of this and share with our team. And some of us have a weekly ritual, and I think we're depending on if it's successful or not, we'll roll it out to more of our team, where whether you're an engineer, you're the CEO, you're uh, any, any role you have at Osmosis, you're writing a weekly thank you card to a customer, a uh, user of ours. It could be a nursing student, they could be a practicing MD, or somebody else thanking them for using Osmosis and, and asking them for their feedback if they have any. And the response rates may be you know, 10, 15% or lower, but that's important because I think it keeps people, puts people in the habit of expressing gratitude, which I think is a prediction sure. for their own quality of life, let alone the one that's receiving the gratitude. Yeah, that's a terrific and certainly a best-in-class kind of strategy to have. I remember at Prescania, I would write on someone's anniversary, I would write everybody a handwritten note. And years later, people would say, you know, I've still got that note hanging on my refrigerator that you wrote me. So I think it's, it's easy for us to overlook how much of an impact it makes on a personal touch. Uh, and I applaud you for doing that. That's impressive that you did that because I know you scaled the company to hundreds and then over a thousand people at Prescott. It took a long time. Well, Mel, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today and thank Max for connecting us as well. Well, it's terrific. I follow your company from afar and now a little closer now that Max is part of the team. And uh, I, I really like what you all are doing and look forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Thanks so much for being with us. And with that, I'm Shiv Uglani. I'd like to thank the audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.